Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. So glad you could join me. Hey, this one's all about you and your questions. So if you uh, wrote in in the last few weeks uh, based on my request or oh, just some other way that you corresponded with me uh, and asked me a question about uh, bird hunting, bird dogs, that sort of stuff, we're going to answer those questions today. Whether you think the answers are correct or not is, of course, up to you. That's not all we'll be covering. In addition to your questions, we'll take a look at, well, one of the things I don't leave home without when I'm taking a dog on the road, I guess that's the best way to describe it. And then, which bird do you chase the most? We'll answer that question from our Upland Nation Index survey. It's all coming up right here on the Upland Nation podcast. How you doing out there? Season going well? You know, I just realized a few uh, folks in a few states really are only getting warmed up around there. And that's a good thing in that um, I think everybody's pretty much checked in now to the hunting mode. We're deep into it around here and uh, finally got to that spot I'd hoped to get for opening weekend. Northwest Nevada is uh, is where we like to hunt for a bunch of reasons. One <laughs> in particular, you can almost always find bare ground, even in the middle of winter. Not everywhere, but at least on the south-facing and the west-facing slopes. And uh, when you're chasing chuckers, um, that's where you start your hunt. So thank goodness for that. Also had a great uh, few nights at the local cafe. Um, walked in and somebody looked at me and I looked at him and he said, "Are you that guy with the white truck and the funny?" Look? And I said, "Yeah, why?" Well, I'm the one who helped you over at that place over there with your flat. T-. I said, "Oh, of course you did." And we got to talk. Spent most of the night telling stories. Maybe, uh, maybe you've had an evening or two like that. Uh, not too many in a row, I hope. At least. Not if they're like the ones we have. Yeah, we found a few birds. Not near as many chuckers as I'd hoped, but um, as I've written and spoken before, when everything else uh, is in the dumpster, there are always valley quail. (laughs) Speaking of which... Sorry, no, don't get too excited. That's just the ringtone on my phone. Yeah, I forgot to turn it off, but it's off now, so we will have the remainder of this podcast undisturbed, you and me and some of our good friends, uh, asking and answering the questions that you've had over the years, well, over the last few weeks. These are all fresh questions, I think. Uh, All made possible by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, True Lock Choke Tubes, and Fur feathersfriends.com. Yeah, learn more about taking somebody hunting for the first time and showing off your dog. That's the whole point. Yeah, the devil is in the details. That's an axiom for a reason. First, it's easy to say, but it's infinitely harder to do. So when I'm on the road with my dog, I've got one more thing I always bring. And it takes a little bit of planning, a little bit of work. Not much, but you want your dog back. If you lose him, put these things in a big envelope and put it under the seat of your truck. Records of his microchip number, 
a little poster that has a good photo, maybe his license number if you have dog licenses, and the stuff to put that poster on any surface. So duct tape, thumbtacks, maybe a little stapler, all those things on a poster with your cell phone number and maybe one other number just in case. You have your lost dog kit handy for the whole season, whether you're traveling far or near. A lost dog kit is peace of mind, even if you never use it. We're brought to you in part by TrueLockChokes.com. You know, not enough people say this, and uh, and I've been meaning to say it for a while about TrueLock Chokes. Uh, these guys uh, have a lifetime warranty and a satisfaction guarantee. Did you hear me right? Yeah, lifetime warranty. Something goes wrong with one of their choke tubes, just send it back. They'll replace it. All TrueLock Chokes carry a lifetime warranty. Just return it, and it will be replaced at no charge. Learn more about the warranty. Take a look at some of the questions they get from other people. It's all at truelockchokes.com. T-R-U-L-O-C-K chokes.com. Some great questions, a little bit of fun. A few wise guys out there, friends and Sort of friends after their questions. I'm looking forward to this a lot. I, I just kind of printed them all out, and I'm going to take a swing at each one with an answer. So let's just jump right in uh, with uh, one of the recent questions. This one from Kip Swem. He says, do you ever call... I hope it's a he. Maybe it's not. Kip? Uh, it doesn't matter. Do you ever call biologists in different states or regions to gather info on the new states you hunt in? And if so... Is there time you feel has been the most fruitful, especially for certain questions you want to ask? And um, the answer is yes and yes. Not only do I talk to biologists in those areas, and I try to get as specific as possible, if there's a game warden or a conservation officer of one sort or another in that area, these folks are also sometimes on the ground more often than the biologists Geez, there's a state on the West Coast that doesn't even call them biologists anymore. That's how little they get out and do biology. So uh, check with a local game warden or, a, a, you know, some states have a county game commission, that sort of thing. But I also talked to other people in their offices. The best tip I got a couple seasons ago was from somebody at the front desk, you know, the phone answerer who directs the phone calls everywhere else. When I said, you know, here's what I'm looking for. He said, oh, I know where you're going. Yeah, I, I hunt that spot too. I'll, let me tell you all about it. And he did. And it was very helpful, especially when it came to access. You never know what you're going to learn if you're just nice, thoughtful, considerate polite, and you time it right. That's the other thing. Timing is everything. There are times a year when these field, uh, in fact, the field-based folks in particular, they're out and about. The opening of deer season, don't forget that's an all-hands deck sort of thing. Um, Midsummer may be a better time. There's somewhere a sweet spot with many of these uh, states where they're uh, counting birds in one way or another. 
try and hit right after that if you can. Of course, follow their you know emails and news as well. So you you don't want to ask for information that you can find elsewhere. Respect their time as they would, we hope, respect your time as well. Hope that helps, Kip. Um, good luck. And uh, hey, tell us where you're going next. Sounds like you got a big trip in mind. Michael Agello. All right. Someday we're going to get together and we're going to do a routine on a stage somewhere. Your question, why do I miss the birds? I wrote a whole book about that. <laughs> well, sort of. It was it was about a lot of things, but that was one of them. Um, but my best advice for anybody with a question like that is always the same. Take a lesson. You would be amazed at what you will find out about your own technique. Everything from, wow, revelation to me. First lesson I ever took, I found out I was cross-dominant. No wonder I missed everything to the left. But a good instructor, and I mean a good qualified instructor, like an NSCA instructor, will look at your footwork, your gun mount, your gun fit, and anything else that may impact your shooting skill. And then, of course... How do you get to Carnegie Hall, asked the violinist. And the cab driver said, practice, practice, practice. Yeah, we got this thing, we Americans. We think we're born shooters and we're not. Anybody who thinks they can just pick up a gun and, and, and hit the target, whatever the target is, is um, hallucinating most of the time. Yeah, there are some naturals out there. I helped one a couple weeks ago, in fact, at the range. But most people, just like playing golf, or if you played football in school, or you shoot pool now, it doesn't matter. How do you get better? You do it over and over. And remember this, hard lesson learned in the music school I went to. Perfect practice makes perfect Thanks for your question, Michael. Stay in touch. Always love hearing from you. Jasper Brand brings up a question that is, well, it is the most read blog post still to this day that I've ever published. Hey, Scott, what kind of boots do you recommend for your dogs? None. Well, there's some truth to that as well. But uh, yeah, I try to commit, uh, condition my dog's feet in, in very specific ways. And, and I'll just give you the short version of that right now. First thing I do is realize that supple pads are what cope best with sharp, pointy objects and rough rock and soil. So you want your dog's pads flexible. I don't mean soft and tender, I mean flexible. Take a dry twig in your one hand and take a green twig in the other hand. A dry twig is the one where everybody tries to get their dog's feet as rough as they can on concrete or on gravel. Bend that twig and what happens? It breaks. Well, the dog foot pad equivalent of a broken twig is a crack or a cut. Bend the green twig and it bounces back. So keep your dog's feet supple with some sort of treatment. There are a whole bunch of, you know, specific dog pad treatments. 
I like a good human foot cream, you know, the kind for really bad cracked heels, for example. I'm putting those on, I'm putting that on flex pads almost every day. Then when I put them out on the ground for hunt, I put uh, one of the treatments for dog pads. I like Happy Jack's pad coat, K-O-T-E, Happy Jack pad coat. If you do need boots for any reason, my recommendation is you're going to lose them. They're going to cost you an arm and a leg. Or if you're out here in the West, the volcanic soil and the lava that our dogs hunt on most of the time is going to wear those Cordura dog boots out in a day or two. So I just bring a roll of duct tape. Some of you might want to put um, baby sock on your dog's foot before you put the duct tape on. That's great. Some people will use vet wrap, something like that on it first, so that when you do wrap your dog's foot with duct tape, you can get it off a little easier without pulling out a bunch of hair. That's not been much of a problem around here, and my dog has hair enough to spare for that, but those are good things. If you want to learn more about how I wrap that dog's foot, then just go to findbirdhuntingspots.com. I at, at least have an article, and I might even have a video up there as well. It's a very specific way to do it so you don't cut off the circulation. And then when a dog comes back with one foot bare and three feet still in the duct tape, you're out a few cents, not a few dozen dollars for one of those spendy dog boots. Wyatt Allenson asks, why does it seem that chuckers are on the top of the mountain at first, but after hiking up, they're on the bottom? <laughs> yeah, lived that last week. Actually, technically earlier this week. Yeah, well, you know, the, the serious answer is um, there. Don't forget, most of those birds evolved in the Himalayan foothills. Their uh, their preferred um, habitat is the top of knobs and tall hills and small mountains. First off, because that's where the their kind of habitat is, the feed they like and the cover they like, which is rim rock or boulders. Second off, because they can see everything coming towards them. So... How do you get around that? Well, Wyatt, uh, the smartest thing to do is start farther away, get up to the top of the hill, and then work down on them. They don't look up or across. They're always looking down the hill. So sometimes you can put a sneak on them. Yeah, just like when we used to play Army as kids and get close enough for a shot. Sometimes you need a side hill because it's just too hard to get above and then come back at them. So get up at least to where you think their level is, send the dog a little higher, and if you get lucky, those birds will fly down and you'll get a passing shot if nothing else. <clears throat> you know, if I had a real better answer to that, I'd be bragging more about how many chuckers I shoot, but that's the bottom line with chuckers. Wyatt, good luck to you, and um, if I see some guy panting at the top of the hill... After walking all the way up and watching them fly back down, I'll ask if it's you. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host, doing a solo turn. Uh, well, not solo at all, actually. You're all in the band with me this time around. So far, Jasper, Wyatt, and Michael, and Kip, and next on the list, my good buddy Sean Couch. <clears throat> 
when approaching a dog on point and the dog moves, causing the bird to flush, do you take the shot or consider that a foul? Sean, ever the comic, spelled it F-O-W-L. Yeah, I did see what you did there, Sean. You consider it a foul and not take the shot. Then he reminds us, uh, or I'm reminding all of you, depending on, you know, it depends on how you define finished in your dog. If your dog found that bird, there's probably a reason he moved a little bit. If he's not being honest, then maybe that's how you train him. Um, but maybe the, do- the birds moved and he was, in effect, relocating, for example, Sean. Uh, I get it. And if you want to do it that way, that's fine. If you want to not shoot wild flush birds or uh, intentionally flush birds before the dog is supposed to do that, I get it completely. Now, I, I also don't get enough shooting opportunities. So on any given day, depending on how the hunting has gone, I may or I may not pass up that shot. So uh, uh, up to you. Like I said, how do you define finished dog? And is your dog that Yes, training a dog to be steady to wing shot and ultimately to fall does require some restraint on your part. Hey, we got a lot more to come here at the Upland Nation podcast, including your favorite species to hunt. Start thinking about that. It may not be what you do, but most listeners to this podcast and most watchers of wing shooting usa who took my upland nation index survey we've got some pretty interesting numbers on that and I'll, I'll tell you what i mean when we get deeper into it so stick around for that we're brought to you in part by sage and the founder fred bohm is a bird hunter yeah and he named his company after two of his bird dogs yeah so um here's the deal it's almost christmas You want something you can really use that will really be cool, that will probably become an heirloom that you can hand down to your children and their children. Give that URL to your spouse, your significant other, or your kids. Maybe they've got a piggy bank ready to get busted. Sageandbreaker.com. Everything from cleaning supplies to gun cases, modifiable boar snake to cleaning tools. Get on the mailing list for sales and new products. Just giving you a heads up, there will be many of both in the next year or two. Sageandbreaker.com. And we're back at the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for sticking with us. Lots more to talk about, including that favorite species you love to hunt the most. But first, some more of your questions. And I just love these questions because they get me to thinking as well. And if you hadn't noticed, I'm I'm thinking on the fly here. It's more fun that way. And I'm hoping I'm giving some useful information, including to Tim Wright. We've all had this happen. The bird gets up in a gale force wind. We lead it where we think we ought to lead it, and we miss by a mile. Now, that's on top of all the other problems we have. But does Tim asks, how much does wind speed affect killing distance? Well, that's, um, you know, there's the distance question and there's the accuracy question. And if you're a rifle hunter, you follow all that stuff a lot more carefully than we shotgunners. But if you think about it, you know, a rifle guy 
puts out a, a bullet and it's pretty hefty. It's got some mass to it. It's probably got the mass of 20 or 30 of our birdshot pellets, for example. So a little tiny number five, number six, number seven and a half birdshot pellet is probably going to be affected at some point by a strong wind, maybe even a lighter wind, depending on what you're doing with it. I don't think the killing distance is as much of an issue. And I don't shoot birds more than about 25 yards out anyway. But, you know, if I was worried about that and I was shooting into a headwind, for example, I might shorten up my range a little bit just to be safe. I might also go up a notch on my, the size of my pellets, or I might go to a more dense pellet, you know, once in a while. Maybe you invest in some tungsten or bismuth or something like that instead of steel. That'll help a lot. And if you're worried about accuracy, accuracy is affected by a whole bunch of things. But you can defeat the wind to a great degree by getting back to one of those more massive, I mean, physically massive pellets heavier with more mass. And then, like you said, Tim, if you're out there hunting West River in South Dakota and the wind is 40 miles an hour, yeah, you should have gone to the local pub. Drop me a private message. I'll recommend a couple out there. Yep, been there, done that. And haven't we all? All right, here's one. Um, uh, no, uh, this is submitted anonymously. All right, but you can relate to this. I can relate to this. It's a great question, so I thought I'd put it in anyway. My lab is a bit wild when she doesn't get out to play and run. Any suggestions for when you want to try and train her, but she's just too wild? Yeah, uh, and in fact, I, I don't remember who reminded me of this the last time, but a tired dog is a trainable dog. Oh, I do. Thanks, Tom Dockin. Yeah, the first thing I do with my dog before I'm doing it, whether it's doctoring, whether it's grooming, whether it's training, I get that dog worn out a bit just a little bit or a lot, depending. You know, there are guys out there who joke about letting their Springer Spaniel out of the truck five miles before a hunt. Whatever you need to get that dog, just, you know, take the edge off your dog's energy. Uh, that will help a lot. If you can truly wear them out, even better. And then you're going to have a nice, short, but intense training session. Wear the dog out. If you need to settle that dog down and you don't have the time for all of that, start with some of the basics. Go back to obedience. Get him to walk at heel. Get him to do a little retrieve or two or to sit or to lay down or whatever. Whatever you're worked on that the dog knows inside and out. Those are clear signals that it's time for learning, not playing. I also use the training table a lot whether it's reinforcing commands and what we've learned already, or it's to start a new command or skill. The training table sets a tone that says, we are learning now, we're not playing, we're not chasing, we're not hunting. It's time to learn. Good question. I have another one uh, as well, um, another one from... From a little bit farther back, it was a Gmail question. If you ever want to talk to me there, you know how to find me at the at the website, finebirdhuntingspots.com. Anyway, this one is, I have a female GSP that is currently six years old. I feed premium food, cannot keep weight on her when hunting season begins. Uh, 
I've tried everything, he says. She's healthy, happy, has energy, but I worry about her being so skinny. Yeah, when we got back from that last South Dakota trip, I looked at Flick and I said, man, I can count, not, I can count all of his ribs, both sides all the way up. And it wasn't like that when we left. So he did five hunting days in South Dakota, and um, he weighed 61 pounds when we left, and he weighed 55 when we got home. That's 10% of his body weight. So I worry about this a lot. I've got a whole bunch of suggestions for you. Um, the first is feed a high-quality food. Maybe it's time to go to a little bit higher protein and fat content, and there are some. I feed uh, Dr. Tim's Momentum Formula. That's got 35% protein and 27% fat, I think. It's a little bit higher than most, and he's fine with that. Some dogs can't handle that. But during the hunting season, or even on a day-to-day -day basis, there are a whole bunch of other things you can do. You can supplement their dog food with uh, all sorts of things. Um, some people like animal fats, like butter. Others like veg vegetable fats, like coconut or olive oil. Any of those will work. You want to be careful about how much you give and get them used to it, of course. I use a powder from elements-nutrition.com called Gainer. Yeah, it's eminently um, metabolizable. Yeah, he can, met he can metabolize it fast. You can sprinkle it on his food and it does the job. We'll get back to our fighting weight and... Well, I'm beyond my fighting weight, but Flick, don't you worry. I bet within a couple of weeks, you'll, but we'll be hunting some more. Anyway, try some of that stuff, see if it works. And then the other thing I do um, is I supplement fat intake during a hunt. Now, I don't feed Flick in the morning of a hunt. Uh, too much worry about stomach twist and performance issues. But I will bring a little squeeze tube full of egg yolks. And if you look at the labels or you learn a little bit about this, you realize egg yolk is almost entirely fat. No carbs, no protein in the yolk. Yeah, and it's not funny. No, it is funny. I get it. Um, and I'll just give him a few laps out of that squeeze tube every couple hours while we're hunting. And it is like a power bar. Egg yolks during the hunt will keep that dog's energy level up and hopefully he'll be burning that fat instead of what muscle volume he has and sapping all of the muscle cells and uh, his other reserves that way. So good questions. Those were from uh, quite a while ago. So I, like I said, glad to have them. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, Sharon. What little wisdom I have, I'm glad to do it. Um, we'll get to your um, favorite birds, the ones most of you chase or the ones you love to chase the most coming up very soon. But first, let me um, get to Lance Larson's question. Lance, uh, hope you're doing well. That puppy of yours sure looks good. Um, he asks, what age do you think a pup should be brought out on their first hunt? Assuming they'll come when you call and you have no problem with gun shyness or anything like that. And, you know, I, I, I did a lot of study a couple puppies ago on that one, Lance, and I might have shared one or two thoughts over the years with you. 
there's the biggest the biggest worry with a young dog is damage to their joints growth plates now growth plate is just another term for the soft tissue that is on the tops and the bottoms of their leg joints for example and probably all joints but those are the ones where it's massive i've seen some of the x-rays you know in a small dog a young dog they got an inch or two of soft tissue in their you know on on each of their leg joints now if a dog is running too hard maybe jumping a bit much those plates could be damaged and they could be you know permanently damaged and affect the dog's gait his ability to move at all it's the start of an arthritis issue all those things are downers from exercising a young dog too long too soon you know five month old dog i ran one flick was out there uh hunting in new mexico with me on the tv show at five months but it was a half hour here and then another half hour later in the day and that was it for the day half hour half hour had to cringe recently when i found uh when i met somebody on a hunt uh who was running their six month old poodle pointer all day too much risk no thank you that dog and i we're going to be working together for 10 years i want him to be in good shape the whole time and i'm sure he wants me to be in good shape the whole time as well so anyway lance short hunts half hour or so a couple times a day no jumping up or jumping down from anything from a tailgate to a training table or anything else oh did i tell you on that new mexico hunt flick's first point was on camera on a black angus steer still looked good until the camera panned over to that and we kept it in of course we did go watch that one it was a lot of fun that show was pretty cool in so many ways uh thanks for your question lance larson uh, joe stancook has a question that's uh it's not really a question he says fetch comma dead bird i'm not sure what you're asking there joe so i'm going to take a wild swing at this because it does bring up something interesting a lot of dogs that see a bird fall understand that the first thing they want to do is go get it because then they can hold it for a while. And I understand that too. I would, that's what I want to do. Um, so getting a dog to run out there and pick up a bird they saw fall, not an issue. You can, depending on how you define all that, if you want to force break a dog or whatever, that's okay too. But that one is an easy one. Now getting them to come back with that bird and give it to you now that's where the obedience side comes in sees a bird drop runs out ideally picks it up runs right back and at your command hands it to you what you do with the bird and the dog after that eh, depends on how you're training that dog all right so a fetch is one thing dead bird is another and we live this every day in the NAVDA training world because we have um, uh, a couple versions of it where nobody saw the bird, and yet we need to send our dog out and find it. And I do use a separate command, and I use the same ones you do, Joe, fetch and dead bird. So the dead bird command, if if I had to interpret it to my dog flick, would be, Somewhere in this general vicinity, and I'll help you with that part. Somewhere in this vicinity, there's a dead bird. 
I trust you, I trust your nose, and I trust your brain. So I'm just going to turn you loose out there. I want you to do everything you would do as a dog to find that bird. That means no straight shot out, necessarily. That means search, use your nose, try and find that scent. Search, use your nose, use your brain, use your intuition. Once you find that bird, then it's a fetch command all over again. And you could do it in two pieces like that, and, and that's how we do it. So when I'm watching him and he's searching out there and he, he obviously hits some scent, then I'll yell the word, F-E-T-C-H. So now he gets it. And that's how we start learning that process. You want to do that, of course. You want to make it easy. You never want to give a dog a chance to fail. So the first search is pretty obvious, or maybe there's three or four birds laying out there just so that he has success early on. Start training that idea that you got to go out and you got to start searching and you got to extend your search. And a lot of NABDA trainers and Bob Ferris, thank you again. One of your fans was sitting next to me at the bar on Monday night. Anyway, do at some point get your dog to extend that search. And there are a lot of ways to do it, depending on where you're testing or what you're hunting. Uh, but you want that dog to go out and keep going out and keep going out and keep going out using his nose and his brain. And then, fetch! Good dog! All right, I've mentioned the Upland Nation Index survey a few times. I asked you uh, if you have anything to say or questions there as well. And while we'll get to the index in just a moment or two on your favorite bird species, got some great questions here as well. I can't figure out what your name is beyond Freelandra. I hope I got that, which is a great, that ought to be a band name if nothing else. Asking for information on chokes for different hunting conditions. Now around here, I don't, I don't obsess about that stuff unless something really crazy is going to happen or I'm going to go out after late winter pheasants in North Dakota. No, that's when we go to the tavern, right? Yeah, that's right. All right. Anyway, I'm always shooting an improved cylinder in one barrel and a light mod in the other barrel. I only take shots at 20, 25 yards. A 30-yard shot is a once-a-season affair for me. So I'm okay with that most of the time. Now I'll change shot sizes a little bit once in a while. Obviously, depending on the birds I'm chasing, but also depending on the time of year or whether I think those birds are going to get up farther away or closer away. Closer away? Anyway, you know what I mean. And I live to regret that, uh, not the day before yesterday, Flick slams a point at the bottom of a draw that's snow-covered. Wind is blowing straight down that draw, and his tail's just moving a little bit, and we're 200 yards away trying to get over there in the snow. So it's downhill. Snow is covering all the rocks. I'm getting closer and closer, and Flick is still steady, and I know by now there's got to be something there because he's still there. Those two chuckers get up together at 40 yards and shoot straight down that tube. And they're, um, they're never really close enough for a shot. But if I had number fives in there instead of number sixes, I like to pretend I might have got them. Anyway, the dog did great. 
the question is about chokes. Uh, you know, don't worry about that as much as uh, as shooting straight. Use good ammo. Use great chokes. And then I'm going to tell you one more time. Go to truelockchokes.com. They've got information. They've got lists and tables and charts and pictures of pattern paper. You will learn so much about choke tubes that you will become more expert than everybody else in your hunting party. They'll be searching you out when they need advice on choke tubes. Good luck to you, Freelandra, and uh, hope that helps. All right, and finally from John Bercy, he asks, do you have any pointers on chicken and sharptail hunts early season where a guy could pop a tent and it won't get stolen during the day? Okay, John, I get it. I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in Los Angeles. To this day, I lock everything and I don't leave anything that might get stolen if it's not chained to a bridge abutment. Most places, most of the time, I don't think I'd worry as much about that as maybe I do or maybe it sounds like you are doing too. If you're looking for great uh, sharp tail hunting and a chance at a few chickens, then the Fort Pier National Grasslands in South Dakota is pretty cool. Now, I've camped out there. It's a giant sea of grass. It's a federal property, and you can camp in many of those places, and there's pretty cool camping spots near water holes and things like that. I'd, you know, I'd leave a tent out there. I'd leave a sleeping bag out there. I wouldn't leave a big screen TV inside. Uh, you know, that's just common sense. And if you're just after sharp tails, you can do the same thing in many areas of Montana, especially if you go north and east. There's national grasslands of various sorts that you can camp on and feel pretty confident you're still going to have a camp when you come back at the end of a, hopefully, a successful chicken or sharp tail hunt. Let us know how you do on those and take a picture of your camp and show it to us. Yeah, I've never heard anybody worried as much about that as, as you were, John. I'm not, I don't mean that in that way. I just mean that maybe folks have had the experiences and they, they've, they've considered them positive. Good luck to you. Well, those are great questions. I sure appreciate them. You know, I'll do this again sometime. Let me know if you, uh, you learned anything from this session of the Upland Nation podcast. We're going to get to that um, what birds you chase the most question right after I turn that off. Wow. And uh, then start talking to you about um, all the other things that are important that make this podcast possible, including being brought to you by Pointer Shotguns. Now, the thing about Pointer Guns is they're always available. These guys don't get a shipment every six months. They get shipments every week. And those things come into the Pointer Shotgun Warehouse, and then they're processed, and they're out to the retailers. So if you're looking for a Christmas gift for a new hunter or somebody who's upgrading from a pump to a semi-auto or so on and so forth, go to the website, pointershotguns.com. Find a nearby retailer on their retailer page. Pick out a model or two, call the retailer, and then just head on down and pick up the best Christmas gift you'll give to anybody for any reason, any season.
PointerShotguns.com. And our good friends at Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. How is your season going? Well, if you're missing more than you're hitting, maybe you ought to get a lesson from the good folks at Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. They're in Western Oregon, so if you're going up and down the I-5 corridor, you might want to schedule a lesson or a practice session. You can practice just about anything there in the way of clay target games, from skeet to trap to sporting clays or five stand. One of their incredible instructors, can I can guarantee you, you'll be a better shooter when you finish than when you start. Everything from gun fit to the shooting method you prefer, foot position and everything else that will affect your accuracy and keep your dog happier in the field. Learn more about the shooting school aspects at midvalleyclays.com or just stop by to practice Wednesday through Sunday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. midvalleyclays.com. Without further ado, I love learning more about you. As I've said before, um, the more you tell me about what you do and why you do it, the more I can tailor the stuff I do to help you arrive at a successful conclusion to a hunt or a better trained dog or a new hunter going with you. All those things happen when you take the Upland Nation Index survey or when you fill out the poll at the bottom of the weekly Upland Nation Insights newsletter or you respond to some of the questions on Facebook. So thank you all for doing that. So I asked, what bird do you chase the most? And here's here, maybe you're not surprised. I, I'm continually surprised, not at the first one. Pheasants, 41% of you say pheasants are your, I mean, your prime quarry. There's probably some emotion in there. I know there is. I mean, they're big, they're gaudy, they're beautiful, they're noisy. And uh, for those of us who don't shoot very well, they're a bigger target than all the others put together. Number one on the list, pheasants. Number two on the list, quail. And I just said quail of all types. Uh, but another 18% of you said quail are what you chase the most. And in some parts of the country, I understand that completely, including this one. Number three on the list, are you ready? Take a moment. If you said rough grouse, you're right. 13% of all the respondents said that's their favorite bird. That's the one they hunt the most. And uh, if you um, live in that country, I understand completely, I would be walking out there every other day if I was living in rough grouse country. Yeah, I even went so far as to ask about ducks. 7% of you said ducks are your favorite species. Um, below ducks, it was kind of a dead heat between chuckers and woodcock, each with about 4.5% of you. And then the prairie grouse, just about 3% of you say that's your favorite bird. Now, I've got to tell you, I don't take this survey because it wouldn't matter. But they're coming right up in my book. Rough grouse, yeah, but prairie grouse, absolutely. Just love walking those big, wide open spaces. And so do 3% of you. Well, 
that'll conclude this Q&A session here at the Upland Nation podcast. Again, I hope somebody learned something. I know I did. Thanks for putting me to the test. And if you got more, don't hesitate to ask those questions. Thanks to all of you who comment at the social platforms, uh, those who left ratings and reviews. It's all made possible by Sage and Breaker Gun Care products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, and True Lock Chokes. So until we meet at, well, that tavern when it's windy, or on the slopes, or at the shooting range, I hope to see you right back here next week at the Upland Nation Podcast. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening.